Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. I'm really happy to be here with you today. We have got a great show in store for you today. A quick reminder that pre-orders for my new book, That Sounds Fun, end on Monday. And yes, that will be sad. Were it not for the happiness of the fact that the book releases the very next day. That's right. Tuesday, February 2nd is release day. It is almost here. And one thing is, if you want to get in on the bonus free audiobook, be sure to visit thatsoundsfunbook.com for all the details before the offer expires on Monday. And I don't think I've even mentioned this to y'all yet, but That Sounds Fun will be available at Target next week with some additional pages included. So while you're there next week, picking up a few things, as we all do, be sure to pop back to the book section and grab a copy of That Sounds Fun, the exclusive version that will be at Target. Feel free to take a pic and tag me. It is the most fun. Y'all know this about me. I love seeing the book out in the wild. Thanks so much for you alls support as we get this book into people's hands. Hey, today on the show is a repeat guest, Jamar Tisby. He was on with Mike Kelsey last spring. It's called TSF with Mike Kelsey, Why History Matters with Jamar Tisby. It's a great episode. His new book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, came out out at the beginning of the month. It's really good, y'all. You know, we love having these conversations, talking about things that are not easy, maybe, talking about things that we may not all agree with every detail. But man, I love having these conversations. And you'll hear him say this in the show, and I will not forget it. Jamar said, the effort is good for our souls. So friends, even if this isn't an easy conversation for you, even if something pings you funny or makes your stomach hurt or makes you roll your eyes or makes you mad, The effort is good for our souls, y'all. The effort's good for our souls. And we're going to consider Jamar Tisby our new professor, and you will see why. He answers a lot of questions. He's got a lot of resources. So here is my conversation with author of How to Fight Racism, Professor Jamar Tisby. Jamar, thank you for being on That Sounds Fun again. This is a pleasure. Thank you for having me again. This is one of the very unique stories that you have been on the show before, but I was not with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It was a unique circumstance, but I am to this day very grateful for your generosity. And uh, I host my own podcast called Pass the Mic, but you literally passed the mic in in order for voices like mine and, and others to be heard. So thank you. And I'm glad I get to say that somewhat personally through yeah. a screen. Well, that's very kind of you. It was very fun handing the show to Mike Kelsey that week and saying, "You tell me what I don't know and have conversations without me there. Because the other thing I know is like when I hang out with a bunch of dudes, they have a different conversation when I'm there than when I'm not. And I always wish I knew what they talked about when I wasn't there. <laughs> Probably aren't missing much. I know, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted Mike to have run of the show. But man, that episode when you and he were together in the spring of last year, spring of 2020, is a crowd favorite. So thank mm. you for doing that. And let me ask you first, one of your, your new book is called How to Fight Racism. And one of the first sentences I read, all racial justice is relational. Yes. Yes. Will you dive into that for a second? Yes. So um, the book is structured around a model I've been developing called the ARC of Racial Justice. It's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And I think there is just so much 
theologically and biblically to relationships when it comes to uh, reconciliation and racial justice. So I also say in the book that when God wanted to reconcile a people, God didn't send a tweet or a TikTok video. God sent Jesus, a person. Why? To establish relationship between God and humanity and between us and one another. And and so I think we can extrapolate that to our efforts at racial justice and say that there is a very human element in it. What, what, what racism does is dehumanize people. What we have to do is intentionally humanize people, and that happens through relationship. I was talking with a Black pastor friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about his new book coming out. And he said, what I've seen in the last two years is white women have really come to bat. Yes. Yes. Are you seeing that too? Do you, because my crowd is who's our friends listening to this are at least a good portion of white women. Absolutely. Uh, This is, I've I've seen that be true as well. Um, When it comes, especially to white Christians and white evangelicals specifically, I have noticed across the board that it is white women leading the charge. They're buying the books, they're doing the book clubs, they're engaging. I've looked at like my data and analytics yeah. on social media and especially on on Facebook and and also on Instagram. Far and away, it's the women who are listening, engaging, responding and interacting. So, thank y'all again <laughs> for for leading the way. You shouldn't have to do, but we appreciate it. At least from my perspective as somebody who talks about racial justice a lot, I think the conversation has changed. So I started doing this stuff publicly in around 2011, 2012, which is right around when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Mm-hmm. At that point, it's a whole bunch of people, mainly men, saying, you know, this is just preach the gospel kind of stuff. Uh, we don't need to get into those quote unquote social issues, actually, mm-hmm. which has a long history. Um Then, of course, all of that gets amplified in 2014 when Mike Brown is killed and we all hear of this place called Ferguson. And then these words, Black Lives Matter, become Mm -hmm. a topic of national conversation. At that point in the conversation, a lot of black Christians who are what I call evangelical adjacent, we're looking at our white evangelicals and we're like, well, are you going to say something? Are you going to speak up Mm -hmm. or is it going to be crickets like we're used to? Then, um, you know, fast forward with this recent presidency and all of the drama and uh, divisions that has has revealed, it's a lot more of people are open, some people. Some people are making statements like, I don't feel like I have to, I, I feel like from certain Christian leaders, I know they're going to say something. And the question is, do they do they really mean it? Mm. <laughs> kind of a thing. But in through throughout it all, uh, back to the point about you know, sort of white women uh, leading that charge in a way and sort of helping to shape the conversation. I think um, wrapped up in racism is always patriarchy. Mm. And so, uh, you know, there are some women who realize from their own experiences of marginalization that, hey, there's connection points here and I can understand it. And the flip side of that is uh, white supremacy is most beneficial. It benefits women as well, but it's most beneficial to white men. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they will be in general, the, the least likely and the most reluctant to speak about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 the benefit, yes, sure. Certainly. I'm interested for starters. Will you back us up a your history a little bit? You told us a little bit of this when you talked to Mike Kelsey, but both color of compromise, your first book and how to fight racism, they read so easily, but they're also like taking a class. I mean, you're very much a professor in a lot of ways. The fact that you have the arc of race, 
the arc of reconciliation. Racial justice. Uh, Racial justice. Thank you. I'm sorry. The arc of racial justice and the ARC. I mean, you're a professor. So back (laughs) me up and teach me a little about how you're so good at teaching. Um, I taught sixth graders. (laughs) I taught fifth graders. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I can see you as a fifth grade teacher. I know they loved you. So, so yeah, after I went to undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, I joined Teach for America. Oh, wow. And I had been born and raised in the Midwest, but that's how I got down to the Deltas. That's ah. um, was my placement site. It was supposed to be a two-year engagement. This is year 18 <gasps> in the South. Won't the Lord so, do stuff like um, that? <laughs> exactly. was not on my radar. I ended up teaching sixth grade science and social studies for four years and then went on to be a middle school principal grades five through eight for another three years. Wow. What do you know? How does that play into the work you're doing now? What do you know now that you didn't know before you were a prince? I mean, a principal is a hard job. I think that's one of the harder mm-hmm. jobs that people don't realize what a, a yeah. principals and assistant principals have to do. <laughs> Yes, teachers uh, get all the love, understandably so, but administrators um, can really make or break the sort of uh, climate of the school. They're the ones who can hire great teachers. They're the ones who can keep great teachers. They're the ones who drive great teachers away, honestly. So um, so it's a pivotal role. I learned, I mean, just moving to the Delta in general was transformative for me. I try not to draw too sharp line between the South and other parts of the country when it comes to race. I will say, I think one uh, real difference is the physicality and the geography of the South. Mm. So, so much of our racial history has happened in the South and you can actually go to places or Mm. talk to people. So, my, uh, I live in the Delta, so it's literally cotton country. Yeah, will you explain what the, the Delta means for people who aren't from around yeah, down yeah. here? So like I said, I was a sixth grade science teacher. It's not technically a Delta. It's an <laughs> alluvial plane. Oh, the no, Delta I've learned down. it was a Delta my whole <laughs> life. <laughs> well, it's named that, but, you know, the actual Delta is is down where the Mississippi River meets the, the, the Gulf of Mexico. And in that area, this is a floodplain. For some reason, they call it the Delta, though. Um, And because it's a floodplain, it has the deepest, richest soil in the whole country, which made it great for growing cotton. Uh Uh, And at one point in the antebellum era, there was a city in Mississippi that had the highest number of millionaires per capita in the whole country because it was plantation owners making money off of cotton. So. To this day, this is where we grow cotton in the U.S. And in the late fall, early winter, my commute to the University of Mississippi, where I'm getting my Ph.D., is through cotton fields. So you can't, wow. you know, pass that without thinking about our history of sharecropping and race-based chattel slavery. So that physicality, for me, it was sort of like a pilgrimage coming down south, wow. where um, for most of U.S. history, 90% of Black people have lived in the southeast. So it was like coming home to a place. 90% of black people have lived in the Southeast. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Obviously due to great slavery. So um, that starts changing during the great migration, uh, first third of the 20th century and whatnot. But so much of our history, anybody, anybody um, in sort of urban areas uh, has connections to the South. Mm -hmm. One of my friends who's from Mississippi calls um, Chicago, North Mississippi. (laughs) Back and forth. 
but I'll say one more thing about how it shaped me being um, not simply in the South, but in the Delta, which for both Arkansas and Mississippi, I'm on the Arkansas side of the Delta. For both states, it's the poorest part of the state and has the highest number of black people. And so that obviously is connected to uh, race-based chattel slavery and then later sharecropping. You needed more laborers than owners, et cetera. But what that means is uh, we're still living, living in the legacy of that history. And so there was a USA Today article in 2019 that named the county I live in the fourth poorest county in the entire country. And so you had... You have this rampant generational poverty, and I'm teaching in a uh, low-wealth public school. And so every day on two feet are walking in all of these issues that we read about, you know, uh, about uh, a lack of jobs, undereducation, um, very poor health care, you know, single-parent households a a lot of times because the carceral system is ripping away fathers from families. Mm -hmm. And so um, it became real to me. In, in, and tangible to me in a way that I had never experienced. So I started asking questions of my theology and the sort of reformed and evangelical theology I grew up with, I found didn't have much to offer when it came to these kind of social justice issues, at least that I had found at that yeah. point. And you're getting your PhD. Yes. <laughs> and just in the middle of everything else, would you also like to get your PhD? <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, again, not part of the plan, but uh, I fell in love with history. I took my first grad course in history at Jackson State University. <gasps> Which and, we were just um, discussing since Deion yes, Sanders exactly. is the new football coach. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so so it, Jackson State is a historically black college. And uh, it, it, to this day, it remains the only class I ever finished the readings, all the course readings ahead of time. Wow. But I just couldn't get enough of it. It was a course on history of the new South. That is the South after the civil war. Yep. And there was so much history. I didn't know. I'm in my early thirties at this point and it, it just names, events, figures, happenings. I had no clue about. And it felt like a key unlocking a door into an entire new world of understanding, not just the past, but our present. I mean, mm-hmm. History is so vital for discerning the times that we're in. It really is that block. I remember thinking this a couple of times in college and as I've been a grown up reading books like yours, it's that block of time between 1865 and 1940 that we don't think about (laughs) enough. We think about the Civil War and we think about the civil rights. We don't think about everything that happened in that that middle block, I mean, yeah. block of time. That's like Don't a generation. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. I geek <laughs> out about that stuff. The one thing I'll say is many of the tactics we saw in civil in the civil rights movement, everything from um, direct action on violence to the March on Washington had roots in the labor movement in the uh, 1920s to the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, yeah, I listen, we could go hard geeking out on that kind of stuff because I think it is fascinating. When we're thinking about one of the questions from our listeners who are mem- get the AFD Weekend Review emails on Fridays, one of the, a couple of the women are saying, two of them in a row, I'm a white woman. How do I be an ally for my black neighbors and friends or even strangers without seeming like I'm trying to be their savior? And the second yeah. one's very similar. As a white woman, I don't know when to speak up against injustice and when to be quiet. She says, yeah. I want to be a good ally. And 
but I don't want to center my feelings. I mean, that that feels like where we are. We've done a, I, my friends listening, a lot of us have done some learning in the last year, year and a half, but it is very scary to know when to use your voice and when not to, because the internet feels like you can get in a lot of trouble for a misstep pretty quickly. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Internet, uh, social media is not known for its grace. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Nuance is not exactly welcome in social media. <laughs> So what's your advice on that when we think about awareness and relationships and trying to really be committed to this? How do we do this without without centering ourselves, without how do we not do this wrong, Jamar? I don't want to do it wrong. Yep. 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 I, I absolutely hear you. Unfortunately, I can't take away the risk of making a misstep. And I actually think that's liberating. Mm. Uh to know that you're gonna go in, it's not gonna be perfect, and that's okay. Yeah. So it, like anything we do, um, there's going to be a learning curve. But experience is a very good teacher. If you're asking these questions, you've already got the kind of humility to want to learn as mm. you go. So I'm far less concerned about people with this kind of spirit and asking these kinds of questions, far less concerned about them making a mistake than folks who just dive in and don't think they're going to mm -hmm. make a mistake. That being said, I think um, there are probably some best practices. Uh, one is really learning from your model and what you did with the podcast last year, where it, it was a, a very clear way to decenter yourself, to have a different podcast host for this conversation on race that, that I had with um, Mike Kelsey. And so what are those ways that we can intentionally sort of um, step out of the spotlight? Because that's always the, the the not even just the temptation. It's one of the things that we don't think about if we're used to having a a a voice. If we're used to people listening to us, we think we don't even think about it. What it takes is intentionality to say who doesn't have the same hearing that I get, mm. and how can I step back and and make sure that they can step forward. How can I make space for them? Another thing is this: when it comes to like speaking out about something. A lot of times, if you're white, you can do that more effectively with other white people, right? right. So it is so refreshing to me, <laughs> uh, whether it's on social media or in real life, when you know somebody says something they shouldn't say or holds a belief that's really troublesome. I always kind of take a deep breath and I'm like, here we go again. As a yeah. black person, you know, I gotta I gotta explain racism once more. It is so refreshing when a white person beats me to it. Mm. with another white mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying when they intervene and i don't have to it saves me energy time trauma perhaps so so those are a couple of ways you know in intervening and interceding in your network networks that i will never have access to mm -hmm. or never have the same level of trust and relationship that you might already have those are good places because it kind of heads it off at the pass and maybe you can make a difference before you know that person with unhelpful ideas ever encounters me Michael Ware and I talked about this a little bit when we talked about politics last week, where we said, you know, we can host this conversation right here and set it in front of people. But what they say around the kitchen table with their neighbors is, right. is what really will ch actually change the world. That's I'm right. going to read one of your own quotes to you, if that's okay. Oh. Often this is talking about being in relationships. And the title of the chapter was, Can I Be Your Friend? And it made me <laughs> so happy because I feel like that is not easy, but I feel like that's, that's, it's easy like that. 
It is right. easy like that. You said often you have to go beyond your existing social network to encounter people who are different from you. To do this, you will have to spend time at places in your community that have racial and ethnic diversity. And so talk to me about what that looks like for our mom friends that are listening, for our dad friends that are listening, for the single guy, for the single girl. Talk to me a little bit about like, okay, so you've got your online life. Here's what you're here's what would be helpful online. And here's what it looks like to get in those spaces. Yes. In your yes, real life. Great. Yeah. So it goes back to the relationship aspect uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, and I have to say, this is going to going to be harder for white people than black people and people of color. Um, one, just numerically, the there, there are more of you than there are of us. And so um, you're going to have to go out of your way in that sense. But even more to the point, throughout U.S. history, white people have worked so hard to get away from black and brown people mm. and have built up intentional barriers through residential segregation, edu educational segregation, Jim Crow, you name it, and we're still living in the shadow of all of that, that is going to take just as much, if not more, intentionality to break out of those social bubbles, if you will. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that practically? I'm glad you brought up online. Um, I wouldn't discount online relationships. I've met some incredible people online and through social media. Uh, you and I have never met yes, in person. Me too. My greatest, <laughs> my biggest diverse friend group that I work the hardest at is Instagram. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, especially in, in after a year of a pandemic, yes. like these relationships sometimes are all we've got. Yes. But also I think we've, we've learned that they don't have to be shallow or, or superficial. And yeah. so, you know, you have a book club. I'm starting a book club on how to fight racism. Like we have really good conversations there and you're going to run into people you would never run into in your own sort of geographical area. So, you know, being intentional even online is is one thing. But um, beyond that, I mentioned for guys like going to a different barbershop. Um, mm. Ladies, I don't know how a hair salon works. Yeah, or, same, or, same. What the dynamic is. But, uh, you know, every black guy I know has been in a position where they're in a different city or a new environment and they've had to go to a, a barber shop that, that wasn't their regular shop. And maybe it was even a white barber. And they're like, are they going to know what to do with my hair? Uh -huh. And you know, that's just one of those kind of experiences that pulls you out of your comfort zone. And so what if you're white and you went to a black barber, that kind of a thing, but more meaningful than that, there's all these sort of situations that we take just as the status quo. Like if your church has a church league for sports, you know, it's going to probably tend to be pretty homogenous. What if you joined the YMCA or the YWCA mm. instead of that church league kind of a thing? I find that it's really hard just to go out and stick your hand out and, and ask somebody to be your friend. There has to be some sort of structure, some sort of reason you're interacting. Yeah. So what are those occasions? I think Great occasions are have to do with the community, city council meetings, school board meetings, um, parades, community events when we can go out again, right? Those kinds of things that put us in the way of other people who are in our community, but because of where we work, where we live, where we go to school, we'll never encounter. And so you got to actually sit down and say, all right, what's happening? Looking at the newspaper, looking at the Facebook page of your city or whatever. Oh, what's that's happening a great idea. that I can get involved with? Yeah. 
Hey friends, taking a short break from this conversation to give a shout out to our amazing partners, KiwiCo. The new year is always a great time to discover new things about ourselves and our interests. It's something I actually talk about in That Sounds Fun, the book, The Importance of Having Hobbies. And it's just as important for the kids in our lives to make these same discoveries. With the KiwiCo subscription, the kiddos in your life can discover something new all year long. KiwiCo's seriously fun and innovative crates provide accessible science and art projects to kids of all ages, from trailblazing toddlers to more experienced explorers and every stage in between. So one of my mini BFFs and I recently did one of the Tinker crates that are geared toward the older kids, like 9 to 16-year-olds. We made this spin art machine. Do y'all remember spin art? It created these amazing designs when you drop paint on the paper while it's spinning. Just opening the box and laying out all the pieces was so fun. Imagining what it's going to become, it was awesome. So we got to use the engineering part of our brains to put it together and to run the wires for the little motor and everything. And then the creative side of our brains, playing around with the color combinations and adding some glitter, you aren't surprised, that we just, you know, happened to have in a drawer. She was really proud of herself by the end and we had the best time. With KiwiCo, you can encourage the kids in your life to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. And you'll get to watch their confidence grow as big as their smiles with extra time at home and even just with the winter weather keeping us indoors more it's hard to find new creative ways to keep the kids busy while also exercising their brains but KiwiCo does the legwork for you so you can spend more quality time tackling projects together KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence creativity and critical thinking skills there's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. So get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code that sounds fun at kiwico.com. That's 30% off your first month at kiwico.com. Promo code that sounds fun. And now back to our conversation with Jamar. Yeah, for women, a couple of things that come to my mind too are like a lot of bookstores do book clubs. And so then yes. you end up with a bunch of people that don't share your faith, that don't share your upbringing. And it's, a you know, because my book club is all people, we have each other's phone numbers, right? But you yeah, can do one much. at the, and where I get my nails done, Jamar, there's women, there's black women who do braids right, or, right yeah. in the same salon. Yeah. And I have learned the most about. I mean, I know, I've never watched women get braids before because that's not right. the salons I grew up going to. And so right. it is bit, it's little things like that. I didn't do that on purpose. I followed my nail girl and that's where she went. Right. 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 And, and those are, those are wonderful for, like I said, sort of pulling us out of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But if we want to get, if we want to do real, real talk about what is going to help us have diverse uh, social networks. It has to do with where we live and where we go or where we send our kids to school. Mm. Those where we live and where, where we go to school is just as segregated, if not more so as it was in the 1950s and 60s. And as long as we continue to perpetuate these patterns of separating ourselves from where we spend the most time, we're always, we're not, we're not, we're Sundays are going to still be segregated. Our social networks are going to be segregated. Mm -hmm. And what that means is not simply that we're we're separate, but that we're actually um, deprived of mm. one another's beauty, richness, culture, yeah. all of that. And of course, that's going to lend to, it's going to make it harder to cross these racial and ethnic divides. I love you giving topics or uh, options that aren't like, 
go pray with another, you know, get involved in a prayer group kind of thing. Though those are very good. But those, you have to, that's two big steps. You have to take your spiritual life into a different environment. And you're going, just get your hair cut somewhere different. I mean, yeah, that's just a start, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I really I really think getting involved in justice issues, that's the C, uh, the commitment aspect of the yeah. arc of racial justice. That's going to put you shoulder to shoulder with lots of different people. Uh, if you attend a march, a protest, a rally, if you attend a meeting where they're discussing an issue, if you get involved with, you know, transforming law enforcement where you are, that is going to put you in touch, in meaningful touch. That's that's the that's the kicker, right? Like, we can have all these transactional kind of relationships with people, uh, superficial kind of relationships. Well, I know them. Yeah, you know of them, but do you really know their struggles, their hopes, their fears? Have you allied with them? That mm. stuff doesn't happen really unless you're on mission. Yeah. Yeah. I like I liked that part of the book. Your progression is such a good teacher progression of like, okay, let's start with what you're doing alone. Let's start with awareness. Like you sit with this book, you sit with other resources. Let's start with what you can do that takes you, you can do that in your comfiest chair at your house. Now let's make some new friends. That's just your neighborhood. Take a deep breath. You're going to be right here. Now let's go to committing to changing the the government and our yeah. our our community, right? Is that kind of did I read that correctly when I was reading the book? Yeah, it definitely works that way. It kind of, you know, is is gradually wading into deeper and deeper water. Um but the way it functions in real life is that the arc of racial justice is not linear. It's messy. It's um, uh, cyclical. It's um, interwoven. And so, for instance, if I go to a a city council meeting, that is sort of uh, trying to do something in the commitment aspect. I want to talk about laws and policies. At the same time, I'm w- I'm raising my awareness of what's happening in in our community and. I might run into somebody who I don't know, but we start a friendship. And so that's building the relational aspect. So it all kind of happens at once in some cases. I think all three of those components, awareness, relationships, relationships, commitment, are necessary for a holistic approach to racial justice. Mm-hmm. And what it does is it allows us to constantly interrogate our practices to make sure we're not just sort of getting in a rut and getting settled in our comfort zone, mm-hmm. but constantly pushing in different directions and trying to um, be intentional about racial justice. I'll give folks one concrete thing to do that I didn't put in the book. Um, oh, but, bonus but content. Bonus content. It You need to set, set three 30-minute appointments with yourself. Okay. And uh, beginning of the year right now, as we're recording this, is, is, is a great time to do it. The first meeting with yourself is to brainstorm. What do you want to be true of you when it comes to racial justice? What kind of activities do you want to get involved in? What kind of books do you want to read? Maybe even start drafting like a personal racial justice statement. I believe this wow. when it comes to race and justice. Your second meeting is to start making a plan. Take all that stuff you've brainstormed. Take all that stuff you've thought about and say, all right, what do I actually want to put on the calendar and schedule? Uh, Because one of the things that I think we overlook about racial justice, it takes time. Like it it takes time to, you know, uh, 
uh, sign a petition, to attend a meeting, to to read a book, whatever it might be. To build the friendships. And so one of the things we have to build the friendships, yeah. absolutely. And so what, what are you, you can't do everything, but what tugs at your heartstrings? What do you really want to commit to? Thank you for to? saying that. And then that third one is to actually do something. Mm -hmm. Do one of those things that you that that's your first appointment after you've made your plan. And once you've done that, I've realized that, that even in my life, as I do racial justice work like all day, every day, I've never done that and just sat down to strategically think about how I personally want to tackle racial justice, where I am in life, and and all of those things. It can be incredibly powerful and uh, set you on a trajectory. That, that leads you to a place you never thought you'd be, but that you're glad you got to. That feels like such a unique invitation to make it a rhythm in your yes. life of like, you're making time to exercise. You're making time to grow spiritually. Will you also, will I also make time to learn specifically about racial justice? That's right. Yeah. As I was reading the book, I'm thinking about my friends that are not white that are listening to the show. As I was reading the book, there were a couple of times that it felt like you were speaking not to white people. That there were a couple of times, like, especially in the part, the whole section about relationships, there were times, which I appreciated this so much, how you were like the boundaries of making new friends and how to do that yes. well. So our friends that are not white that are listening to this, what's their role in how to fight racism? Because you wrote part of the book to them. How do we all mm -hmm. do this together? I really hope that uh, this book speaks to audiences beyond just the traditional black-white divide. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that is a, a critical divide. It's really, in many ways, the divide simply because of the history uh, because of race-based chattel slavery. It's not to say that the oppression that other groups have experienced is is not important or hasn't been egregious. Um, but I do think that even if you're not black or white, this book is going to be helpful because I speak in, in terms of principles and practices that are broadly applicable. So, you know, when I say if you want to diversify your organization, uh, have potential applicants write a racial justice statement, you know, just like you, you, you would write, you know, a, a, a philosophy of teaching statement or something. If you're applying to be a professor, write a, write a philosophy of, of your racial justice that can go for anybody of any race or ethnicity, any organization, big or small, that kind of a thing. When I talk about one of the things that's been resonating with readers is uh, a section in the awareness portion of the book that talks about writing your racial autobiography. That's something that any race or ethnicity can do. And it's going to be fruitful because it'll it'll force us to really reflect on our experiences and also put words to those experiences, which we may have never done before. So even though I frequently talk about black and, and white people and the racism uh, that is present along that vector, it is really geared toward and I think helpful to anyone um, of any race or ethnicity who wants to be part of the solution and work for racial justice. Here, here's how, literally, here's how to fight racism. <laughs> we could not have made the title easier for you, everyone. Um, I can, I, can I just say I'm, uh, I'm shocked that book title was even available. <laughs> like when I thought of it, I was like, surely, yeah. surely somebody has come out and then, and no, I mean, there's, there's titles that are similar, but nobody had come out just straight up yeah. how to fight racism. And that's the niche. I think this book fills is we have a lot that explains racism. That was my first book, the color of compromise. Yeah. Right. But, but 
so often the practical aspects are like crammed into the end of a chapter or at the end of the book. This is a whole book dedicated. I say it, it, it prioritizes the practical. Yes. And so there's no way you can come out of any one of the chapters without having at least a couple of things you could actually go out and do. Yes. That's why, I mean, that's why you're such a good professor for us. Okay. So there are also friends of ours listening that are not white and are not black, that they are yep. Asian or Hispanic or any other kind of uh, minority group. Um, yep. Sometimes I feel like they, they, that's a big thing to do is to group all them together. But do you know what I mean? Like the black and white conversation is very dominant, but there's other racial issues for other races. How, how do we help? How do we have that? How does, how can we even put how to fight racism into conversations we're having with our Asian friends or with our Hispanic friends? It it is such a nuanced conversation, right. um, but the, the big the big principle is this: uh, folks may have heard the phrase "none of us are free until all of us are free." Mm. I think an, a, another way to think about that is um, when black people get free, all of us get free. Why? Because that's that's the big divide in the U.S. because of race based chattel slavery. This is not the uh, uh, oppression Olympics. This is not comparing. Um, you know, people's suffering or or marginalization. This is saying that um, what makes Black history in the U.S. Uh, somewhat unique is is this history of race based chattel slavery and everything that went with it. Now, that's one manifestation of this overarching concept of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. What white supremacy does is say that everything considered white is normal, right, superior, on top of the pyramid. Everything considered non-white is less than other exotic. That includes black people at the bottom, but all other people of color as well. And so all people of color are affected by white supremacy. White people are affected by white supremacy. But what makes it so complicated is that it's such a different kind of discrimination and stereotyping that different groups go undergo. So, so um, Asian Americans, for instance, are considered quote unquote, the model minority and are considered um, by many white people, the good kind of minorities Mm. because, you know, Oh, stereotypically work hard, get good grades, you know, all of that stuff. Um, Immigrants from South America and Central America have, have recently have always had it hard, but have recently been um, stigmatized even further because of this sort of political controversy around immigration, right? Yes. And then it's not monolithic, right? Puerto Ricans have a different history than Mexicans, than mm-hmm. than Brazilians, all of that. So you'll often hear me say, I'm trying to, there's a lot, that's a big question, but you'll often hear me say black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. That is because I want to make sure that we don't lose the specificity of anti-black racism and how much that has affected um, black people, but all of us really. In the same breath, I say this, in the 1950s and 60s, the civil rights movement, which was explicitly a movement to um, racially desegregate, fight against anti-black racism, that helped propel other movements from the women's movement to... uh, you know, minority rights to, uh, uh, you know, Mexican uh, uh, immigrants had had movements. It helped spur um, labor movements, all of that stuff. And so the idea is that 
if we can push forward and promote the rights of a, any particular people group, that's going to help all of all us. All of us, yeah. Yeah, and I would even say that will help white men and women, that it, it just changes our hearts. It makes it makes us richer humans if we are helping and being a part of everyone being treated equally. It may cost you yeah. in power, but you will gain in richness of soul. <laughs> My goodness. Yes. Preach that. <laughs> right. Um, well, I really believe that. I really believe that. So I will preach that. Okay. So I'm going to now turn to Professor Tisby on this one. Will you go? Someone is asking, one of our friends asked, uh, she said, I kind of had a realization that all of my Bible commentaries are written by white men. And she's like, yeah. I just would like it, some other things some other resources to go along with that. I know Dr. Evans did, Dr. Evans' commentary Bible is like, his study Bible is unbelievable. So that would be one. Do you have other commentary kind of Bible resources for people that yep. are, okay, go. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things that we have to realize is historically um, black people and other people of color have been locked out of the formal kinds of education that you might get in college universities or seminaries, which means women to some we don't degree necessarily too. have. The, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so we don't necessarily have the systematic theology textbooks or the Bible commentaries, which, but that doesn't mean we don't have theology. Mm. So what we have to do is, is learn to, to look, look for theology in other places. For me, I found tons of theology studying history. Yeah. And particularly the history of the black church tradition. And so you can go to uh, Al Rabito is a Princeton historian. He wrote the books uh, Slave Religion, talking about the origins of black Christianity in the U.S., where we had to go out to hush arbors um, in the antebellum era and and uh, worship under cover of night because we couldn't do this out in the open in front of white slave owners. Um, and, and talks about the development of that. You got to look at music from Negro spirituals to blues music to even contemporary hip hop to get theology out of that. And certainly in terms of the black church tradition, our theology is sort of epitomized in the black preaching tradition. Mm -hmm. And so uh, listening to some classic preachers like Gardner C. Taylor, um, but also some more contemporary voices like uh, William Barber or John Faison Jr. Uh, there there He's are so many Nashville. right now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and it absolutely lights out preacher. But, but, but the way they're talking about grace, God's sovereignty, politics, you name it, that's where our theology really comes out and really shines. So I'm not going to sit here. I mean, I can tell. I'll tell you some theologians who I think are brilliant. Um, uh, Kemeni Uwan, uh, she's one third of uh, the Truth Table podcast. I love that um, show. All those ladies, Michelle Higgins, uh, Dr. Christina Edmondson, listen to them, but also read whatever they write, uh, whenever they write. Uh, Micah Edmondson, who's Christina's husband, is a uh, has a PhD in theology. He did his dissertation on the doctrine of suffering mm. in Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology. Wow. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And he, um, for Esau our friends Macaulay. listening, he is now here in Nashville, and he co-pastors with Scott yeah. Sauls, who everybody just yeah. heard on the right show. The so, church. yeah, he's one of the yeah. church plant leaders here. 
Unreal. Y'all, look, y'all have an embarrassment of riches uh, in Nashville. Come it's on. Beyond. Spread it's the beyond. Wealth. Yes. <laughs> Esau McCulley is uh, another one. Um, Dr. Jarvis Williams is coming out in August with a uh, 500 page biblical theology on race and ethnicity. Wow. Uh, so, so we're out there and yeah. we're doing the formal theology. I just find it so exciting and fascinating to look for theology in unexpected places. Oh, me too. That's that's great advice. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation one more time to tell you about one of our incredible partners, Stitch Fix. You know it. If your go-to outfit in 2020 became sweatshirts or yoga pants, you may be feeling like you're in a style rut. Let Stitch Fix help you feel excited about what you're wearing again. Stitch Fix offers clothing hand-selected by expert stylists for your unique size, style, and budget. You take their style quiz, letting your stylist know your preferences, any upcoming special events, your budget, and things like that. And then they surprise you with a curated fix just for you. Well, you know it's coming, but the contents are a surprise. It's such a fun way to find clothes that you will love to wear. And I gotta say, I much prefer it to regular old online shopping. Every piece is chosen for your fit and your life, and it's the easy solution to finding what makes you look and feel your best. Here's how it works. Your stylist sends you a box containing five pieces, clothes, shoes, shoes, and accessories. You try on the pieces at home before you buy and keep what you love and return what you don't. Stitch Fix has free shipping, easy returns and exchanges, and a prepaid return envelope is included. They seriously thought of everything and makes it so easy and fun. There's no subscription required. Try Stitch Fix once or set up automatic deliveries. You'll just pay $20 styling fee for each box, which gets credited toward any piece that you keep, you guys. And there are no hidden fees ever. Stitch Fix has styles and clothing to fit any occasion for women, men, and kids. They ship all over the U.S. and are available in the U.K. as well. Big hellos to my U.K. friends. So get started today at stitchfix.com slash that sounds fun. And you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash that sounds fun for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. Stitchfix.com slash that sounds fun. And now back to finish our conversation with Jamar. Will you walk us through the witness, which is an, an year that you began and the Instagram account is awesome. I learned so much from y'all and pass the mic podcast. So if we're looking to you as one of our professors, will you kind of tell us about those two resources that we can get on a regular basis to go along with the book of how to fight racism? <laughs> Pass the mic is our uh, is our lab. That's where we yeah. experiment. That's where we test out ideas and have conversations for the first time. Uh, the the brains behind Pass the Mic is my co-host Tyler Burns. He is brilliant, wise beyond his years, a pastor, a cultural critic with with keen sensitivities. So I I would love for people to listen to Pass the Mic, and you'll hear us processing out loud and raw, but it's, it's also liberating. You know, you know how it is when you're honest about how you feel, whether you're confused, angry, uh, excited, whatever it is. I think we kind of let that out on the podcast and people really resonate with it. Mm -hmm. So certainly excited about that. And then you asked about the witness. Yes. Oh my goodness. I am so excited about the witness. Uh, I started this thing on my own. I was in my living room. I was in seminary in student housing 
it was like 11 o'clock at night. I should have been in bed, but I started this thing with uh, a Facebook page. I created the page and I was just about to press enter on my laptop when I just had this sense, like once I press this button, something's going to happen. And it's not going to be in my control. It's going to be out of my control. It's going to be good, but I'm not going to be able to, you know, manage or maneuver it the way I want. And I press enter and sure enough, <laughs> God had God's own plan. And so that was 2011 in October of 2020, we announced a, a huge expansion. So we are now the witness Inc. Uh, the CEO. Yes. We have two divisions. One division is the Black Christian Collective, which most people are familiar with if they've heard of it. Yeah, that's Tyler what I follow on Instagram, yeah. the Witness BCC. Right. That's where we started as we expanded. That's one of our divisions. That's our multimedia division. What we try to do there is put words to the expansive Black Christian experience. Do that through blog posts, podcasts, uh, uh, videos, events, things like that. The newest edition the new division is the Witness Foundation. Yes, that, I see it, it hitting follow right now. Thank you. Um, I, I, I could just go on and on. But what we're trying to do is, in addition to that word ministry, we're trying to do deeds ministry. Mm. And so the cornerstone of the Witness Foundation is this innovative fellowship where we are um, identifying, training, and funding Black Christian leaders. We're doing an inaugural cohort of five Black Christian leaders who are already engaged in justice work. And we just want to come alongside them and be um, an advocate and accelerate uh, what they're doing to the tune of $50,000 a piece for each of two years of the fellowship. So a total of $100,000 investment because we believe that much in Black-led endeavors. Yeah. And so few people out there, even in the philanthropic world, uh, will 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 put that much confidence in Black people to lead our own organizations and to uh, minister in uh, the communities that we're most familiar with. So that's all brand new. Uh, folks can go to thewitnessinc.com, thewitnessinc.com. We're in the middle of our fundraiser, the Will You Be a Witness campaign, raising $500,000 for both of those divisions. Yeah. And so you can find out more at thewitnessing.com. I mean, you're a professor and a pioneer. Your face lit up when we when you said, here's a new thing we started. True. We got just incredible people. <laughs> and, you know, so many marginalized and oppressed people have had to do so much with so little. Yeah. I'm just thrilled to see what we can do if we actually have the resources we need. Yeah. Okay. I have two questions for you that I'd like you to encourage us a little bit. Number one, right. someone said, what do you see, Ashley asked this question, what do you see that is giving you hope right now regarding racial justice and racial reconciliation? What is giving me hope? Well, first off, you know, it's one of those things where you you really only appreciate the good news when you understand the bad news. Okay. And so I want us to, to make sure that we're not rushing past the history of racism in this country, the current pain and trauma that so many black Christians like myself who have been in white Christian circles are feeling uh, right now, the, 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 the trail of you know church hurt and brokenness is long and very gruesome. So that is true. And uh, let us not rush past that. But at the same time, 
What is also true is that the light shines in the darkness Hmm. and the darkness has not overcome it. That's right. So we see, so I see so many signs of hope. Um, This conversation, right? Like, I don't know what it would have looked like five years ago, but I do think the conversation is shifting and changing. And I think there's an openness to it. Uh, Even nationally, uh, we just, I just finished watching um, the inauguration and uh, the, the new president, Joe Biden said the words white supremacy in his inauguration speech, which I don't know has ever happened before, Mm -hmm. but it signals that there's an awareness even at the highest political levels that we got to do something about race and ethnic relations in this nation. I think that's a sign. I think there is a flowering of literature right now that is just, it's overwhelming. If you have a book budget, it's shot to smithereens Mm -hmm. because there's so much good stuff coming out right now. I think there is a reckoning if we can just be honest, I, I think to. there's a reckoning within the white evangelical church that's happening right now. It feels um, like it. It makes my I, stomach hurt. But it has to happen. You know, I think it's a sifting that the Lord is doing. And uh, people are declaring themselves. They're they're declaring where they stand on racial justice more clearly than I've ever seen. And uh, this is not a time where you can sort of both sides it. It's not a time when you can straddle the fence it's a time when you have to take sides and justice always takes sides. And as painful as it is, as much as it may feel like a, a ripping apart and a tearing apart of relationships and hopes and institutions, it is a necessary thing. It purifies us and um, lets us know where we really are. So I see all kinds of hope in in that sense. Along those same lines, we have a good chunk of white guys who are here that listen to me. We have one in the office. We call him our prince, Craig. Um, (laughs) We have a lot of white guys that are in our circle. Can you give them some encouragement? Are you seeing white men do some good things in all of this? I mean, much of the good I'm seeing is people standing up for truth and being vocal about it. Yeah. Like so much of this, so much of this begins with a commitment to the truth and speaking up about it. Why? Because it lets other people know where you stand. Mm -hmm. And for so long, we've sort of swept these conversations under the rug. We have not talked about politics because it's too divisive, too controversial. We've not talked about race, except in the broadest terms, what MLK would call uh, pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities, right? You know, you speak these flowery words, they don't really do anything. We've done that for so long, but now because these are issues with great moral clarity, you either support separating kids and parents at the border or you don't. You either support the idea that policing in the United States has done incredible harm to black people or you don't. Um, There's so much of this uh, that is – it's just – a lot harder to not take a stance and to not have an opinion. But that's also an opportunity for you to stand up for racial justice. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this. The, the analogy I use, <laughs> you know, I, I do a good bit of preaching and the people who know me, uh, there are a few in my life who, I, who, who, who knew me when, but now they know I'm a preacher 
and they're like, well, I, oh, I got to watch my language around you. Uh, I can't swear because you're you're a quote unquote man of God. I'm like, look, I'm not that uh, uptight about yeah, it. You but, can be you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still you. Yeah. I'm still me. But 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 it's that sentiment, right? Why don't you swear around your pastor? You may or may not use curse words, but you definitely wouldn't use one around your pastor because you know where that person stands right. and you know what that person is about. Well, in a similar way, people ought to know where you stand on racial justice. People ought to know where you stand on justice issues writ large, such that they don't come around you talking mess about you know, black and brown mm. people. They don't come around you spouting off any conspiracy theory. They don't come around you talking loose because they know through conversations that you've had, through statements that you've made, that you're not going to stand for that stuff. That You may end up still disagreeing. You may never persuade someone to come around to your way of thinking, but they absolutely should know what you believe, mm. where you stand on it, and what your boundaries are. And trust me, when you do that, <laughs> it's going to lead to a whole lot more stuff. Yeah, You're going to find who your real friends are. Mm -hmm. You're going to find what the basis of your so-called unity was. And maybe it wasn't as deep as you thought. Mm -hmm. You're going to find that as you think more deeply about those justice stances, you get more involved in actually doing something about injustice. It's going to set you on a trajectory, but God is so good because God doesn't set it up to where we have to be all the way there yeah. immediately. Yeah, We can take a small step of saying, I disagree with you, mm -hmm. or I have a different perspective. And that is going to absolutely open up whole new vistas for you to, to pursue racial justice. Mm -hmm. That's good. And I want to circle back to one thing you said. You said five years ago, I don't know if this conversation would have happened. And I'm sorry about that. I wish I don't I don't mean that to you personally. I, know, I just mean you publicly yes, conversation. You, you you publicly thanked me for giving the mic to Mike, Kelsey, and you. And I want to publicly apologize that it didn't happen sooner. I'm a slow learner, but I'm learning. And so so thank you for being here now. We're different going forward uh, since the last couple of years of learning, but I apologize it wasn't sooner. I'll receive that. I just thank hope you. you know that I was making no, a general no, no. comment. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't feel like you were pointedly at all. You right. were being you were being uh, complimentary toward our show. I know, but I also recognize that I I I want to be more thoughtful every day. That's what I want to well, be. Well, that's a that's a great point that you bring up. We are so focused on the path ahead. Sometimes we need to pause and look at what's behind us and acknowledge all the ways we missed it mm -hmm. in the past. That's what I want churches to do, honestly. Yeah, I've your part about lament. So many churches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the part about lament, like, it's not just, oh, we were wrong. Let's go fix it. Charge. <laughs> right. We were wrong with tears, with sackcloth, with, yeah. with ashes, yeah. right? But also, how do we repair? Mm -hmm. There are so many um, loose ends mm -hmm. in my spiritual life. Not from me. I thankfully have have very healing relationships. God has been very tender with me. But just in terms of actually practically interacting with other people, there are so many loose ends because the people who did terrible things to me um, because of racism, even if they've realized the errors of their way, they haven't gone back and addressed it. Yeah. They haven't come back and apologized. They haven't come back and said, I realized what I did. 
we need more of that. And I think especially white Christians and white churches, before we jump to what's next, Mm -hmm. we need to look at what we've done and figure out if there's anything we can do to repair it. And there may not be, but the effort is good for our souls. Oh, the effort. I mean, could that just be the theme of this? The effort is good for our souls. Even if you're still figuring it out, even if you're still learning, even if you don't believe everything we're saying today, the effort is good for our souls. I'm taking that. I'm making a t-shirt out of it. I don't know. We're going to do a lot with that, Jamar Tisby. (laughs) I like that. I like it. Um, Okay. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we cover? There's a lot, but I don't, I don't. (laughs) Will you just come back then? Will will you, will you come back at some point and we can keep going? I just want to make sure folks know that at some point we're going to have to change laws and policies. So, um, you know, every January we celebrate MLK day and for a lot of black people, we're quite ambivalent about it because we see how King's legacy has been co-opted by the very same people who, who take stances that he was fighting against, you know, that, 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 uh, take stances, um, that, that, that he would not have agreed with. And yet they pull his words, they, they pull his image and they claim it as their own. I think the reason that co-optation happens is because we've made Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement somehow apolitical. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it doesn't have anything to do with laws and mm-hmm. policies, but it does. And if we understand that so much discrimination that black people in particular have faced is due to laws and policies, then when we undertake racial justice, we're going to work on a law and policy level as well. Mm-hmm. So I just want to warn people and give you a heads up. I don't know your background or tradition, but a lot of uh, uh, white Christians, they've been sort of discipled into being very selectively political. I Mm. I will not say they've not been political, been very selectively political, but you're going to have to at some level. This is where the commitment aspect in the arc of racial justice comes in. You're going to have to work on a law and policy level as well. There's a whole other, you know, conversation about that. I just want you to Take a deep breath and understand that's going to be part of the process. That's right. That's right. Jamar, thank you for doing this today. I'm so grateful. We have one final question for you. I don't know if you got to answer this one with Mike. I I think you did, but you get a new answer. Because the show is called That Sounds Fun, tell me what you do for fun. Goodness. Uh, So I, when How to Fight Racism came out, I... Got myself a present, a, a new Kindle Paperwhite Ooh, e-reader. Yeah. So, uh, and now I only, because I'm writing a dissertation and I deal with racial justice, I only ever read nonfiction, serious stuff, all that. Yes. So I'm going back through the Harry Potter series now just to like <laughs> take my mind off of things and unplug. <laughs> it's been so fun. What house are you in? Have you taken the quiz? <laughs> yes, I'm in Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. Okay. Okay. That feels like that feels you? right. Um, I think I'm a Hufflepuff. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Would definitely yeah, sense. okay. I feel like that's what the quiz told me when I took it. Um, okay, Professor, please come back and let's continue this conversation this year. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Oh, friends, isn't he just the best? The professor, right? Like, 
I feel like we were learning from a friend the whole time. There's a lot of easy handholds in that conversation. The same is true for his book, How to Fight Racism. Go ahead and grab a copy today. And he told you he's hosting a book club, so make sure you connect with him over that. And make sure you're following him on all the socials and tell him thanks so much for being on the show today. We also have a bunch of links available for you. Uh, AnnieFDowns.com slash podcast. Jamar's episode will be there and you'll see all the links below so you can be sure to find the Pass the Mic podcast and the witness that we talked about, all those things. Hey, if you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and all the places you may need me. That is how you can find me. And I'm Annie F. Downs, TSF, like that sounds fun, on YouTube. All right, I think that's it for me today, friends. What a good week of shows. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Go out or stay home. Do something that sounds fun to you, and I'll do the same. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday when, to celebrate the release of That Sounds Fun, the book, we turn the tables and the microphone on me with Knox and Jamie from the podcast, who will be here to interview me about the book. I am as nervous as you are. I can't wait to share it with you. We'll see you guys on Monday. Monday.